from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Christopher Buck on November 10th, 2014. Christopher is an attorney and independent scholar. Prior to becoming an attorney, he taught at Michigan State University, Quincy University, Millikan University, and Carleton University. He's the author of various book chapters, encyclopedia articles, journal articles, and books. His notable works related to religion include Religious Myths and Visions of America, How Minority Faiths Redefined America's World Role, Alan Locke, Faith and Philosophy, Paradise and Paradigm, Key Symbols in Persian Christianity and the Baha'i Faith, and Symbol and Secret, Quran Commentary in Baha'u'llah's Kitabi Egan. He is also on the faculty of the Wilmette Institute. We talk about Christopher's works and the Wilmette Institute in the interview. I started the interview by asking Christopher where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Las Gatos, California. It was kind of small at the time. San Jose, uh, Santa Clara Valley was the prune capital of the world. Imagine that. <laughs> but during my childhood, the prune orchards got bulldozed down, and as you know now, it's now Silicon Valley. What was religious life growing up? What was it like? When I was first raised as a Presbyterian, and then when I became a teenager, my parents thought that too much man-made theology was being preached from the pulpit, and they switched over to the Assembly of God. So in my teenage years, I spoke in tongues, which was not... (laughs) Not uh, very usual for a teenager. Yeah, so you were quite into it. Yes. I think it was more to please my mother than God. (laughs) Mm. And what were your interests growing up? I was interested in paleontology for a while, but different from that common interest among boys especially, Uh, At an early age, I started writing curators of paleontology at natural history museums to ask questions. So that's when I first began to contact scholars. I remember that one paleontologist, who was a leading paleontologist at the time, I believe curator of paleontology for the New York Museum of Natural History, his name was George Gillard Simpson. And he sent me postcards of museum exhibits and a copy of a book that he authored, a signed copy. Then later I became interested in chess, and then in my teenage years, a guy I played chess with in high school during the lunch hour said, why don't you uh, try out for the cross-country team? And I said, well, you know, I'm not athletic. And he said, well, you'll get an A for PE, (laughs) just try it. And so I did, and I, I started uh, competing in cross-country and track. That's not religious, but... Uh, <laughs> did you have an interest in writing when you were younger? Yes, I did, Warren. I 
guess I, I first got the feedback, you could say, that I had some talent in writing when there was an essay contest. I was in sixth grade. It was for the entire school district that went up, up to eighth grade. And I won the award for best essay. In other words, I outcompeted eighth graders mm. when I was in sixth grade. I wish I had kept the story. I think I was embarrassed when I read it one time and <laughs> threw it away. But it was called The Wounded Cat. It was about a, a mountain lion that killed a kid. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, sounds sounds exciting. Yeah. Well, at the time, there was a local author in Los Gatos. I'm trying to remember his name. He wrote a book called Yellow Cat, another one called Gray Wolf. And I would read those books through the Scholastic Book Services. Our sixth-grade teacher, I think his name was Mr. Shepherdson, he invited this local author to talk about his books. So that inspired me more to you know, do some writing. What did you do after high school? I went to Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, Washington. And what did you study there? I'm embarrassed to say, but I, <laughs> I ended up majoring in physical education and minoring in English. It didn't really prepare me for a career. Did you work after college, or what did you do? I was an occupational maverick because my college degree didn't lead to gainful employment in my field, so I, I just did a lot of low-paying jobs until I went back to graduate school. And before going to graduate school, this was by my fiancé's encouragement. She's now my wife. We've been married 30 years. So in 1983, I applied to the University of British Columbia. Before that, I had taken one graduate course as an unclassified student at the Western Washington State College in Bellingham, Washington. It's now Western Washington University. And the course was called Problems in Ebionism. Uh, I have to explain that Ebionism refers to Ebionite Christianity. This is the most important sect of early Jewish Christianity from the 2nd to the 4th centuries. The word Ebionim in Hebrew means the poor, this group of early Christians called themselves the poor. In other words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. This is one of the Beatitudes of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, or the Sermon on the Plain, if you are reading in the Gospel of Luke. Same plain, but uh, same sermon, but different setting. I took this graduate course. See, when you go to graduate school, you should have majored in that field as an undergraduate. So a PE major cannot get into graduate school in the study of religion with, without taking qualifying courses. So I took two years of qualifying courses at the University of British Columbia from roughly 1983 to 1986, 85 or 86. It sounded like you became a Baha'i before you went into graduate school? Yes, I became a Baha'i on December 15, 1972. And what's your story? What, how did you find out about the Baha'i faith? The first Baha'i I ever met was in my junior year of college. We had started a chess tournament to select the top four players from our college, Pacific Lutheran University, for an intercollegiate Pacific Northwest tour- a tournament that included the states of 
as I recall, Washington, Oregon, Iowa, and Alaska, if, if I recall correctly. This chess player, his name was Warren Whittakin. He was a graduate student of physics, came late. And he said, hey, can I join the tournament? And I said, no, you're too late. And he said, well, that, that's a shame. Last year I finished second in the Midwest Open. <laughs> and so I became very interested in this guy, and I said, well, we will let you in on condition that you play the top players. And so then he uh, was allowed to compete in the tournament. He then referred me to another Baha'i on campus. There were only two Baha'is at, at the time uh, at Pacific Lutheran. And this guy was a, another graduate student, but in psychology, and he was a former monk of the Dominican order. So he knew his Koine Greek, his New Testament Greek, and his ecclesiastical Latin, in other words, the Latin that the Church Fathers wrote in, and he was the perfect person to deal with my dogmatic view of Christianity, and that's who really taught me the Baha'i Faith. This chess player, did he introduce you to the Baha'i Faith? The chess player I didn't have much interaction with beyond the chess tournament, after he introduced me to the former monk, that's the man that I interacted with and his family in my exploration of the Baha'i faith. How did he end up introducing the Baha'i faith to you? So Warren Whittakin, the chess player and graduate student of physics, he introduced me to the gentleman that taught me the Baha'i faith. I think I was invited over to dinner. So the first time I went to this man's house, to meet, to have dinner with him and his family, I first met his dog. It was a husky, an Alaskan husky, with these very interesting blue eyes that just stared at me. They looked almost like they had a soul. I don't know, it gave me a feeling that I was about to, you know, have a special experience. So I went in, my spiritual father, sometimes that's a term Baha'is use for the person who teaches you the faith, introduced me to his wife and to his daughter. And we had dinner, and the questions began from that point on over a period of several months. What was your initial reaction to hearing about the Baha'i Faith? Well, at the time, I was worried that it was of the devil, because I had a strong belief in Satan. That haunted me for throughout my childhood. I write articles for Baha'iTeachings.org, and now they're up to 72. This is a a Baha'i, the most popular Baha'i website in the world. It's not an official Baha'i website. Uh, its audience is for people interested in the Baha'i faith. It's not directed towards Baha'is. Ninety percent of the audience are, in fact, people investigating the Baha'i faith. So the website is B-A-H-A-I and then teachings.org. Now, they have a number of likes on each article, and the article that I've written that has the most number of likes, it's over 2,000, is called Satan's Epitaph. And that's why I write about how, in an ironic way, to believe in Jesus Christ requires you also to believe in Satan. This is in traditional Christianity. The Baha'i teachings say that Satan is a personification of human evil, but Satan does not exist as a, a principality. That shifts the responsibility away from human beings, such as myself, who are really the authors of evil, 
to a principality. And so my first concern when encountering the Baha'i faith is, could this be from Satan? And even though the Baha'i teachings are excellent, uh, there's nothing evil about them, in fact, they're quite the opposite, there's a verse in one of the letters of St. Paul that says that even Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. I'm just paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the most spiritual person could be a manifestation of Satan, and you will have no way of knowing that's how great my fear of Satan was. So how did you overcome that? The man who taught me the Baha'i faith, he told me, you know, by their fruits you shall know them, which is one of the statements by Jesus Christ. And so the fruits of the Baha'i faith, of course, were, were excellent. Uh, there was nothing but pure goodness about them. They were fruits that were not presented in my Christian experience. By fruits, you can say the Baha'i teachings, the Baha'i principles, and on the same website that I just talked about, after years of studying the Baha'i teachings, one approach is uh, an article I wrote called 50 Baha'i Principles of Unity. So without going through them, just to be able to identify 50 separate teachings that are represented as different kinds of unity can give your audience some sense of how profound the Baha'i teachings of unity really are. So these are the fruits of the Baha'i faith that I found myself increasingly attracted to. But more than that, what really engaged my interest in the Baha'i faith was a, a small book of wise sayings or aphorisms by Baha'u'llah. They were called the Hidden Words of Baha'u'llah. And when I started reading them, I found myself hearing the voice of God, hearing the voice of divine authority, recognizing in the same way that I recognize that the words of Jesus came from God, I recognize, recognize these words from Baha'u'llah as coming from the same divine source. So you eventually became a Baha'i? Yes, I did. And what was your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? They were alarmed, because my mother especially was a strong Christian, so I became the black sheep of the family as a result. And then on visits to my mother in San Jose, California, which is right by Los Gatos, I would go out with her at night to a house that was being constructed a couple of doors away. We would sit on the porch. You know, I said, Mom, let's pray together. And she said, okay. She wanted to encourage that. She would pray from her heart to Jesus, and I would pray from the Baha'i prayer book, which has prayers revealed by Baha'u'llah and Abdul Baha and so forth. Later on, I asked my mother, well, why don't you ask Jesus who Baha'u'llah is? And she said, okay, I'll do that. I said, pray first, and then tell me what your answer is. And she did that. And much to my surprise, she said, I got my answer, Chris. And, and I said, well, what were you told? And she said, Baha'u'llah is a man gifted in praise. So he wasn't true, he wasn't false. I think that was influenced by the fact that we prayed together, and I would pray prayers that Baha'u'llah revealed, which are very beautiful, praise God in a magnificent, very spiritual way, and I think that that influenced her. You ended up studying religion in graduate school. Yes, I did. And that was influenced by you being a Baha'i? 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After you finished graduate school, what did you do? I wasn't accepted into graduate school at the University of British Columbia. In fact, they rejected me. And the reason was is I had to take language courses. So I took a course in Hellenistic Greek and then in Koine Greek and then uh, a couple courses in Latin. I got a B in uh, New Testament Greek and I got a B, I believe, in Latin. But I got a C in Hellenistic Greek. And that's what killed me. I had to maintain a B average. Well, to make a long story short, I did get accepted into a Master of Arts program at the University of Calgary in uh, the province of Alberta. It was with the understanding that this would be a terminal degree because I didn't have the background to support going on to a Ph.D. So I went there from 1989 to 1991, and then I wanted to go on to a Ph.D. program. And my uh, advisor, who is is one of Canada's top Islamicists, his name is Andrew Rippon, he said, well, Mr. Buck, I thought we had an understanding <laughs> that this was a terminal degree. And I said, well, look, Professor Rippon, I saw the level of the other students, and I wrote a 300-plus-page thesis, which uh, one of my examiners here, the professor of Jewish studies, called a dissertation. And I said, think I'm good enough for a Ph.D. if you'll support me. And he said, okay, I will, as long as you do not do philologically intensive work, meaning language-intensive work, Mm. but I will support you in your Ph.D. application if you go on to do comparative work. So my Ph.D. was in the academic study of religion at the University of Toronto, which was Canada's top graduate school at the time, and I specialized in comparative phenomenology of religions. Graduated in 1996, and then in answer to your question, I I moved down to the United States for my first full-time teaching position as a professor of religion at a small university in Decatur, Illinois, called Millican University. Decatur prides itself in being the soy bean capital of the world, even though a country like Brazil produces much more. How long were you at Millican? For two years. Then I taught for one year at a Franciscan, in other words, a Catholic university called Quincy University in Illinois. And I had a a very difficult commute three days a week. I would drive 180 miles to Quincy from O'Fallon, Illinois, and then back. So I had six-hour commutes three days a week. Oh, my gosh. That's brutal. Yeah. And then after that, I had a contract to teach world religions at the University of Iowa. We moved our furniture to Ames, Iowa, for that purpose. And then my wife got accepted to a program at Lansing, Michigan, and we ended up moving there. So I ended up teaching at Michigan State University for four years from 2000 to 2004. While I was teaching there, I was teaching research writing with an American Studies focus, my wife encouraged me to go to law school. So I started going to law school part-time while teaching at Michigan State full-time. So I pursued a law degree. I finished my studies in uh, December of 2005, got my law degree in January of 2006. And then we moved to Pennsylvania after my younger son, Teraz, 
got accepted to the PhD program in computational biology at Carnegie Mellon University at age 18. And that's why I became a, an attorney in Pennsylvania rather than Michigan. Did you say he got into a Ph.D. program at 18? Yes. When I was teaching at Millican University from uh, 1997 to 1999, so I have two sons, Takor and Taraz. The older son is T-A-K-U-R. We named him after Bahá'u'lláh's ancestral village in Persia in the province of Mazandaran. Taraz was 19 months younger than him, so we sent them to a Lutheran school because that was the only private school that was available. Usually when young students are bright, they'll skip maybe first or second. They'll skip early grades. What happened was Taraz scored a cumulative 99.9 percentile on the Stanford Achievement Test, and that turned everybody's head. To make a long story short, Taraz skipped 6th grade, 8th grade, and 12th grade, and he entered Michigan State University at age 14 with a semester's worth of credits. When we got him to apply for a Michigan State scholarship, he was denied a scholarship because he never finished high school. (laughs) I'm not saying he was a high school dropout, but he was accepted (laughs) directly from high school into university. So the reason why he had a a semester's worth of credits, these were not uh, advanced placement credits, what they call AP credits that you take in high school. These were actually college credits because there was a program at Michigan State called the Gifted and Talented Program. So I enrolled Taraz in the Gifted Program, and I enrolled Takor in that program. He was not considered gifted, but I said, look, this is gifted and talented. My older son, Takor, is talented, and they accepted that argument, and both my sons started taking Michigan State University classes while still in high school. Now, what inspired you to go into law school in the first place? My wife. (laughs) She saw the writing on the wall. My position at Michigan State was going to be converted to a tenure track, and then the, the budget crisis hit. And when I left Michigan, Michigan had the second highest unemployment rate of any state in the country. So the economy killed my chances of becoming a tenure-track professor, that I would just be trying to renew contracts, and those contracts would come to an end, and we'd have to keep moving and so on. You know, she could see what was happening. I could not. You know, I started going to law school. So you've done a lot of writing in your uh, spare time. You have a number of books that you've authored. What was the first book of religious topic that you wrote, Chris? Well, the book was published in 1995 under the title Symbol and Secret, Quran Commentary in Baha'u'llah's kitab e That's the Persian title for a book known as the Book of Certitude. It was actually my master's thesis. What's the symbol and the secret? The symbol would be how Baha'u'llah interprets the prophecies. Mm -hmm. So he regarded the uh, prophecies in two stages. This is what I argue in the book, that first what Baha'u'llah does is he shows the reader that prophecies are not literal, they're figurative. So he'll use, for example, appeals to absurdity. In other words, this 
special type of argumentation where you say basically, well, look how ridiculous it would be, how impossible it would be if a star fell from heaven. It would just obliterate the earth. So whatever it means, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean a star literally falling to earth. It has a spiritual meaning. And then after establishing that this is figurative language, Baha'u'llah then goes on to say, okay, so now that we know it's figurative language, guess what? It represents something. It symbolizes something. Now here's what the symbols mean. So that's the symbol part. The secret part was that Baha'u'llah revealed the Book of Certitude within two days and two nights in answer to questions from one of the uncles of the Bab, who was the forerunner of Baha'u'llah. For a period of time, Baha'u'llah was actually a follower of the Bab. So the Bab proclaimed his mission in Persia in 1844, which is really where the Baha'i calendar starts, is in that year, 1844. You can analogize it to the fact that Jesus Christ, before he proclaimed his mission, was a follower of John the Baptist. During this period of time when Baha'u'llah was exiled to Baghdad from 1853 to 1863, he was still a follower of the Bab until 1863 when he proclaimed his own mission. During that time, which Baha'u'llah calls the Days of Concealment, the secret was what you could call a messianic secret. So even though there were many hints as to Baha'u'llah's greatness, Baha'u'llah had not proclaimed his prophetic mission during that period of time. That part is the secret. Now the work, the Kitab Igan, he addresses Christian prophecies as well in that work. And I'm wondering, were you struggling also when you were investigating the Baha'i faith from the point of view of looking at prophecies from a literal sense rather than in a metaphorical sense? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> were you exposed to this work as you were investigating the Baha'i faith? Uh, yes, it's one of the books that I, I definitely read. Because I know in one part he describes what is meant by the return of Christ coming down in the clouds. Right. And so I think many Christians literally believe that when Christ returns, you'll see a person on a cloud descending onto earth. Yes. Baha'u'llah addresses this in the Kitab Ikan, and I was wondering if you could explain to our Listeners, what Baha'u'llah's explanation for that uh, prophecy is? Sure. Well, as a cloud obscures the sun, a cloud is interpreted as a veil. And so Christ would appear in a veiled way. In other words, it wouldn't be totally obvious to people who Christ was. And so we see in the New Testament that Christ was recognized first and foremost by Peter, I mean, by the twelve disciples. They were his followers. When Christ was crucified, you know, the Gospels give a couple of different figures, 70 or 72 disciples. So, in other words, except to those 70 or 72 disciples, it was not obvious to the rest of Judea that Christ was the Messiah. And so one cloud can be interpreted as you know, the fact that he appears as an ordinary man when people are, are expecting, uh, 
you know, something spectacular, a, a, a superhero. <laughs> Christ did not come across as a superhero. I'm using modern terms, of course. And in one of the letters of St. Paul, you know, Paul says that the crucifixion is a scandal. He actually uses that word in Greek, scandalon. In other words, the idea of a crucified Messiah is an oxymoron. It does not compute. This goes totally against the Jewish expectations as to what the Messiah would do. So this would be the meaning of cloud is veil. And and besides, if you're going to take prophecies literally, why not go all the way? So clouds do not descend. Clouds are there up in the sky. One Baha'i told me, as I was investigating the Baha'i faith, a a Baha'i who was a writer, he said, well, Christ will not come in a cloud except if it's a mushroom cloud. (laughs) (laughs) That gave me the idea that I shouldn't take this literally. Chris, what was the next book that you wrote that had a religious context? It was called Paradise and Paradigm, Key Symbols in Persian Christianity and the Baha'i Faith. The first book, Symbol and Secret, was published by a small press. But Paradise and Paradigm was published by the State University of New York Press, which to this day is the largest academic publisher of religious studies titles in the United States. What was the connection between Persian Christianity and the Baha'i Faith? Were you trying to make some kind of connection between the two? Yes. So when you're trained in the comparative phenomenology of religions, you are trained to compare commensurables. In other words, you compare apples with apples, not apples and oranges. To make the comparison work, I had to look at the same cultural context, even though there's quite a distance in time, and that took me to Persia. So I had to ask the question, so the Baha'i faith began in Persia, which is now Iran. So what was happening in Christianity? And if I'm going to do anything comparative, let me compare something in that same religious and cultural setting over the span of centuries. And that's why I focused on Persian Christianity. Is there anything of interest from the comparison of the key symbols between the two that you want to share? Well, first I had to find some texts that were highly symbolic. And the perfect person for that was a church father named St. Ephraim the Syrian. Of course, I call him a saint. That would be a Catholic term. He was the only church father who was highly respected in all three of the international languages of the early church in late antiquity, Greek, Latin, and Syriac. Now, Syriac is a dialect of Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke growing up. It's thought that this language is of considerable interest because many of the expressions that Jesus used would resonate in Syriac. And so Ephraim the Syrian wrote in Syriac, the Church Fathers were basically, by and large, not read by the Christian faithful. Illiteracy was predominant in the world at that time. Only relatively few, the educated, could read. And so very few Christians, frankly, would read the Church Fathers. What Ephraim the Syrian did, though, was he wrote hymns to be sung in church by choirs of virgins and widows. 
his writings directly connected with the Christian laity. They were highly, richly symbolic, and this made perfect material for a comparison of St. Ephraim's use of symbols, in other words, in Syriac Christianity, which is another term for Persian Christianity. The Catholic Church of the East, I believe, was the official title. Catholic meaning universal, not Roman Catholic. This is part of Orthodox Christianity. So remember that Christianity has three main divisions, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant. In this tradition, the Syriac tradition, which is an Orthodox tradition, is very, very rich symbolism. And these are the type of texts that I will compare with the symbols in Baha'u'llah's texts. Can you give me one example of one symbol? Sure. Now, what I did was I mapped out these symbols in what I called symbolic profiles. It was a new method in the comparative study of religion that no one had ever come up with before. So what I did was I used a dimensional model of religions. The president of the American Academy of Religion at that time was a a scholar named Ninian Smart, who wrote a book called Dimensions of Religions. I came up with a paradigm called Dreams of Religion. In other words, six dimensions of religion. I later changed it for the purpose of teaching, but Dreams stands for Doctrinal, Ritual, Ethical, Artistic, Mystical, and Social Dimensions of Religion. And I had two schemes. One is for what were called key scenarios, and the other is called for root metaphors. I won't explain what they are now. But what I came up with were symbolic profiles. And what I argued was the faithful do not think in terms of creed in antiquity. They thought in terms of stories and images. In other words, I created stained glass windows of religious consciousness at the time. So these were the maps of symbols that I would use. An example of one symbol would be that of the physician, a doctor. Both St. Ephraim, the Syrian, and Baha'u'llah make very strong use of this term, physician. So we have that symbol in common in both the Baha'i and Persian Christian traditions. Uh, what I would do is I would test how these symbols worked in each tradition. What I would try to do is use a technique called transposition. In other words, if you take a hymn of St. Ephraim and plug in a Baha'i term, will it work or not? Will it be understandable? And vice versa, if you use physician in the same sense that St. Ephraim used it, in one of the writings of Baha'u'llah, would that work? And the long and the short of it is, is there are similarities and differences. The similarities is that both Jesus Christ and Baha'u'llah are divine physicians. And they have their fingers on the pulse of the patient, which is humanity, which is sorely afflicted, diseased, and in need of a cure. The difference, though, is in what is considered the medicine. In Syriac Christianity, the medicine is basically the sacraments. So communion and the other sacraments would slowly transform a faithful Christian from a human being into an angelic being. And there were mystics at the time, in other words, people who were like hermits, they were like monks. 
they would separate themselves from the rest of society, even though they would also advise people and give advice and do good works. This is a difference where the emphasis was on holiness and gaining angelic powers, as it were, versus what the medicine was from Baha'u'llah's standpoint, which were teachings that would help humanity. These are not exclusively different. There's a great deal of overlap, too, because Baha'u'llah also talked about becoming holy, but in the sense of becoming spiritually pure and morally benevolent. So this would be an example of one shared symbol with both similarities and differences, that of Jesus Christ as divine physician and Baha'u'llah as divine physician. Was the next book that you wrote called Alan Locke, Faith and Philosophy? Yes. Now, let me talk about the pronunciation. When you go to Howard University, or recently on September 13, 2014, when Alan Locke's remains were buried in the um, Congressional Cemetery, the pronunciation you'll hear there is Elaine Locke. I know it sounds like a woman, and sometimes it gets misspelled, but that's how his name has come to be pronounced. I refer to him as Alan Locke because that's, you know, what his parents nicknamed him, and they called him Alan, you know, in the research I've done. And what Locke did was simply choose the French spelling for Alan. So either pronunciation is fine, whether it's Alan or Elaine. So was this a biographical work? Uh, yes, but it was what some scholars call a zonal biography. In other words, a specialized biography. In other words, a biography of Locke as a Baha'i, a member of the Baha'i faith. What moved you to write a book about Alan Locke and the Baha'i faith? It was actually the suggestion of a professor at Oxford, a Baha'i professor named Sina Fazel, who was at the time an editor, a co-editor of Baha'i Studies Review, which is an academic Baha'i journal. So I had published a couple of articles, said, what do you suggest? And he said, well, what do you know about Elaine Locke? I said, not too much, but I can write on him. I ended up going to Howard University and researching their archives. It's called the Moorland Spingarn Research Center. It's in the basement of the Howard University Library. And over time, I would research the archives, and that's how I assembled materials for my book. What would you say is uh, was most interesting about Alain Locke? I would say the fact that his writing is brilliant. It's quite deep. Funny thing is, is that Locke's main claim to fame is as the so-called dean, in other words, the spokesman or leader of the Harlem Renaissance, which was in the mid-20s to early 30s, or maybe mid-30s, a uh, cultural movement. So at the time, this was what's called the Jim Crow era. That was America's apartheid. There was legal separation under the separate but equal doctrine of the second worst Supreme Court decision in U.S. history called Plessy versus Ferguson. It was in 1896. That was not overturned until Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, which is the same year that Locke died. So during this time, when African Americans had no political recourse, no real voice, even though they had the vote, the 
Locke used culture as a way to improve race relations, and most importantly, to try to abolish the stereotypes that were prevalent. White America would have strong prejudice and stereotypes about, as they were called back at the time, Negroes. Locke started something called the New Negro Movement. Now, in a sense, to use an old term, Locke was a race man, in other words, a race leader. In that sense, Locke was also a black nationalist. At the same time, Locke was a cosmopolitan. He was a world citizen. And so Locke became the first to internationalize the race problem. That was important. The definitive biography on Locke that was published in late 2008 by the University of Chicago Press, the authors, Leonard Harris and Charles Molesworth, Paul Locke, the leading spokesman for African Americans between W.E.B. Du Bois and Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. So he had this prominence back then. But I believe his writings about America and democracy are his most important legacy. And he happened to be a Baha'i. Yes. So what happened was Locke started investigating the Baha'i faith we don't know the exact date, but my guess is around 1915, when he was in Washington, D.C. We know that Locke declared himself a Baha'i in the year 1918. Now, this was not previously known. The leading scholar on Elaine Locke was a gentleman named Leonard Harris, who kindly contributed the foreword to my book. But at the time, in his writing, he would say that Locke found a spiritual home in the Baha'i faith, that was attracted to the Baha'i faith, and hung out with Baha'is and so on, but he didn't have any proof that Locke was a Baha'i. So I'll never forget that in the year 2000, in uh, asking the Baha'i National Archives, hey, do you have any proof that Locke was a Baha'i, the archivist, Roger Dahl, sent me a photocopy of something called the Baha'i Historical Record, which was administered in 1935. And the Secretary of the Baha'i Council, which is called the Local Spiritual Assembly of Washington, D.C., had sent this card to Locke three times, asking him to fill it out. And when Locke finally filled it out, he only filled out one side of it, but he signed it, there was uh, a question about, well, what was the year that you embraced the Baha'i faith? And his answer was 1918. And when I sent this information to Leonard Harris, he wrote me an email back, all in caps. It went something like, bingo, bingo, bingo. You did it. In other words, I proved that Locke was a Baha'i. So it was in the year 2000 that I persuaded the leading scholar in Locke that Elaine Locke was indeed a Baha'i. The last book that we have time to cover is the one that you have titled Religious Myths and Visions of America, How Minority Faiths Redefine America's World Role. Tell me what inspired you to write this book, and what's the uh, thesis behind the book? Let me um, tell you what I did at Michigan State University. So I was the America guy at Michigan State. Every course that I taught was on Visions of America. So in my last year, which was 2003 to 2004, I got a one-quarter appointment 
in religious studies. I was invited to design a course for a religious myths course, which I did, and it was called Religious Myths of America. It was actually rejected by the religion faculty. To make a long story short, it was offered as a required course, in other words, among a group of required courses that you could students could choose from, called Integrated Arts and Humanities. So it was offered as that type of course. What really inspired me to write the book was, after I'd become an attorney in Pennsylvania, out of the blue, I think it was in fall of 2007, a senior acquisitions editor from Prager, which is a, an imprint or a subsidiary of the largest publisher of academic reference books in the United States, which is called ABC Clio. They are based in Santa Barbara, California. The editor said, well, hey, Dr. Buck, we saw your syllabus, Religious Myths of America. It looks very interesting. How would you like to send us a book proposal? So this was actually an invited book. Well, if you're invited to write a book, that will naturally make you inspired <laughs> to write it. And that's the story of how that book came to be written. And what's the book about? Well, the book surveys 10 religions that have either official or popular or semi-official beliefs about America, not just individuals who write about America, but the community, the faith community itself. And I thought this was a very interesting phenomenon. I wrote about that. One of the reviews of this book, this is published in the Journal of American History in June 2011, the reviewer called it an original contribution to American studies. Now, the thesis of the book you had asked about that is basically this, that America from the start was considered special. So when the pilgrims landed, you know, even before they landed on the, uh, the pilgrim ship, the Arbella, there was a sermon given by uh, somebody named John Winthrop, who later became governor of the colony of Massachusetts, and he said, we shall be as a city upon a hill. Basically, the world will look to us, and so on. So this idea of the new world in America becoming a beacon for the world started before America was established. It was an idea that spread among the colonies. The idea developed into what I call the Protestant master myth of America, now, it had a downside to it, too, a, a dark side, actually, and that evolved into the doctrine of manifest destiny. Americans thought they had permission from God, a divine right, as it were, to conquer, colonize, and Christianize by force. And so we took away the land from the Indians, we took away a third of Mexico during the uh, 48th U.S.-Mexico War, which we basically started, even though we said we started in. That's how we conquered America. Of course, there was Louisiana Purchase in between, and that's what Manifest Destiny was all about. You know, this is something that later we would apologize for, sort of, and the reason why I say sort of is because in 2008, in, I think it was on September 1st, the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs issued an official apology on behalf of the 175 years of the existence of the Bureau. The irony is that Kevin Gover, who is the uh, the man who gave the apology, himself was 
Native American. He is a Pawnee. And so here we have a Native American apologizing to Native Americans for what this federal agency, which at the time I believe had somewhere around 10,000 uh, government employees, did to the American Indians. And there were about 300 leaders present, some of whom openly wept. I later found out that I was the only academic in the, or first, and at the time only academic in the country, who wrote to the Bureau of Indian Affairs and asked if there was a videotape of this apology. So to make a long story short, after a year, year and a half, I got the video and I posted it on my website. I think it's now posted on YouTube. That's how the video came to be available to the public, because it is public domain. And then I wrote a, a paper called Never Again, which was published in the American Indian Studies journal, an academic journal called the Ricazo, Ricazo Saw Review in 2006, in which I wrote about this speech. The thesis of the book is we start off with the master myth, and then minority religions start to take a look at America. What they begin to do is to nuance this American myth, and they put their own spin on it. So we have a Catholic spin, and then a Jewish spin, and then when immigration starts to free up in the late 60s, then we get minority faiths coming to America and developing their own sense of American identity and what it means to be an American. And so the subtitle, How Minority Faiths Redefined America's World Rule, is really the thesis of the book. The thesis is in the subtitle itself. My last question is, um, you're involved with something called the Wilmette Institute, and I was wondering if you could describe for the listeners what the Wilmette Institute is and what courses do you teach? As I recall, I've been teaching since around 2001. There are a number of courses that I have taught. These are offered on a recurring basis. I'm writing a revised edition of Religious Myths and Visions of America as we speak. The publication date is March 1st, 2015. They've already announced it on Amazon.com, so any of your audience who would like to read the revised edition, it will not only be newer, but it will be cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> so back to your question about the World Med Institute. Currently, I'm teaching a course called Tabernacle of Unity. This course is on a small book that was published containing five tablets of Baha'u'llah. Tablet means, you know, a letter, basically, that Baha'u'llah wrote, usually in response to questions that the person who sent a letter to Baha'u'llah asked. The enrollment is modest this time. We now have 12 students. We get a range of students. This is the first time I felt like I'm teaching a graduate seminar, usually the students, they can be retired people, they can be people with just an interest, they want to enrich their understanding, and so we get all levels. For example, I have a student, uh, what we call them a learner, who is not a Baha'i, and this guy has two PhDs, and he's living in Taiwan. Very interesting. You never know what to expect. Well, that's one course. Some of the other courses are courses on Baha'u'llah's Book of Certitude, on Baha'u'llah's Most Holy Book. Well, let me tell you about a couple of courses that are coming up in 2015. One interesting course that was recently approved by the National Spiritual Assembly of 
the Baha'is in the United States, which is the National Governing Council, is called Two Peacemakers, Deganawida and Baha'u'llah. Now, for any of those who are uh, Native Americans in the audience, I must apologize for pronouncing this sacred name. The name can be printed, but it should not be pronounced. It's considered too holy. So, uh, really, we should call this individual the peacemaker. So, this reach students who have an interest in Native American religion and the Baha'i faith. Another course that will be offered in 2015 is the Destiny of America. I've taught courses on Zoroastrianism for Baha'i faith. It's called Zoroastrianism for Deepening and Dialogue. Another course is called Islam for Deepening and Dialogue. I'm sure there are other courses that I've taught as well. So there's a variety. Now, Chris, is not the Tabernacle of Unity in response to questions from a Zoroastrian? Yes, that's right. The first two tablets are from a Zoroastrian named Manakji Saheb. Manakji was a Zoroastrian from a Parsi from India who was sent to 19th century Iran as part of a society for the amelioration of Zoroastrians. Amelioration means benefit or help, and so he was sent from the Zoroastrians of India to help the Zoroastrians of Persia, which mainly resided in two cities, Yazd and Kerman. So what happened was that Manakji hired a Baha'i scholar as his secretary. The Baha'i scholars named Mirza Abul Fazl, Gopaigani, that's his full name. Through his secretary, he sent questions to Baha'u'llah, and the first two of these five tablets are Baha'u'llah's responses to these questions. The other three tablets are presumably written by other Zoroastrians. I can't recall if we have their names or not. Well, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your story and your work and Women Institute. Well, Warren, thank you for this opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Christopher Buck, attorney and independent scholar who has written several books about religion and the Baha'i faith. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.